The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's not exciting when guns go off. I meant, you know, exciting is like, you know. Like an action movie. The definition of the word exciting. Oh. Like the feeling of excitement. Gotcha. It's usually associated with good things. Right, right. Just like fantastic is now associated with feeling good or something being awesome. Uh-huh. But actually fantastic. But actually. Um, actually, fantastic used to be used just to mean something that was hard to believe. Well. Fantastic, made of fantasy. I think that's fantastic. It is kind of cool sometimes to dig into etymology. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, I guess I don't think it's fantastic because I find it easy to believe. I just think it's great. So I think that it's the new version of Fantastic, but not the original version of Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for all the pedants. 
out there like us. That was for you. That was for you. <laughs> that was for you. That was for you. Are you fantastic people? So fantastic. Um, in every way. Oh, now that now Old it's sarcastic. And new. Sarcastic, fantastic. Yeah, that's my spectacular, spectacular. <laughs> sarcastic. If I ever fantastic. do a circus show, it'll be <laughs> sarcastic, fantastic. I feel like sarcastic, fantastic could be your autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, oh, I'm, it's so I'm unbelievable. Uh, somebody said I have fake sounding laugh. I know forced giggles. Are you forcing your giggles? People on have me? said that for a long time because I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I changed my laugh. Oh. In maybe middle school or high school, mm-hmm. I did put some work into it because I laughed differently before. How did you laugh? Let me see if I can conjure it up. <laughs> what if you revert <laughs> immediately back? <laughs> you did that. Oh, you did. Like yeah, the... I did like the donkey laugh. Oh, okay. And you didn't care for it. I didn't. Okay. I didn't. And um, look, I don't feel things. Uh, <laughs> I don't react don't to stuff things. very regularly. If I wanted to, mm-hmm. I could just have a very blank expression all the time. I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I what? do believe What's that. that supposed to mean? <laughs> I think you just, you're like Queen's Gambit, but like Blackjack <laughs> or something. <laughs> you're just like up in your head, envisioning yeah, games. I have just you could math just problems like being solved. Remove yourself uh-huh. from any situation <laughs> and just play craps in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't now I don't laugh like that. I laugh like I laugh now and it's just mm-hmm. how it comes out so I don't know maybe it sounds fake maybe everyone I've ever laughed at was like wow he clearly doesn't think I'm very funny uh-huh. but I actually kind of think I'm like very easy to make laugh. to 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 think something's funny like I'm mm. I'm very forgiving in comedy I'm not gonna say I have a low bar because I'm regularly insulted by people trying to be funny <laughs> and it's bad but, you know, earnestness <laughs> and effort goes a long way in comedy for me. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes I am, uh, maybe even often, I am the only one laughing. Because <laughs> you, got, you got me. I'm a good audience, I think. I don't think there's anything wrong with going around being ready to be pleased. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, that's all it is. That's, I just that's what I try. I'm yeah. trying I'm striving for every day is just right. like I don't want to be in a position where I'm just ready to complain all the time. I yeah. want to be ready to be pleased. I'm I'm okay. You know, I you know, unless something egregious really happens. Right, right. You know, there's really not much to get upset about. I think in some ways it makes me a harsher critic because I want to like things i want to laugh at things i i would so much rather enjoy something than not enjoy it like who wouldn't right we've talked about this right? before with like movies and stuff yeah i've 100 of the time i am trying to have a good time mm-hmm. so if i don't like something i'm a little insulted like it's not hard to <laughs> like, please you really, me <laughs> you really fucked up yeah come on so i don't know i don't know if that makes me a good person or more of an asshole but hmm. <laughs> I, I guess suppose it, it depends who you ask. Yeah, it depends on how hard you fucked up. <laughs> and how hard you fucked up, yeah. <laughs> how hard did I fuck up today? Yeah. Did Eli like it? Damn, I couldn't Damn. get Eli on board. Woof. We should make this whole Obi-Wan Kenobi series over again, I guess. I mean, you know what? <laughs> I think several people would I was be ready. glad <laughs> to see a new effort. I was ready. But enough of that. Well, but it, you know what Obi-Wan was? The product of a lot of labor. <laughs> Ooh, 
Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's so good. A lot of labor. Oh, that's a transition that, that just. Shit. Oh, it was like somebody just scratched the right spot on my back that I couldn't reach. <laughs> that transition. Mm. Keep it going. That's why they give me the medium bucks. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> And today we are going to be telling a story right in time for Labor Day. Yes. About how it came about that we have our eight hour work days and uh-huh. our, you know, 40 hour work weeks. And yep. we have our certain wages and all these these workers rights that protections were protections for our, protections. our health and safety. Yeah, that's right. That were fought for right. by actual people having to do a lot of crazy shit. <laughs> and, and, and dead dead in the center of it, a very bizarre romance. Yes. Uh, we don't even know a lot about, but it does sort of, the story sort of radiates out from there. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. So Sid Hatfield was the police chief of Matewan, West Virginia in 1920, when coal miners were striking a lot for better hours and better wages mm-hmm. and safer conditions. And private detectives acting for the coal companies responded by forcibly evicting strikers from their homes. Ugh. And all of this culminated in a shootout that left seven of the detectives dead. Oh, no. Now, the miners and their allies maintained that the detectives had shot first. They killed the mayor, who was a union man named Testerman. But the detective said that Sid Hatfield shot Testerman because he was hot for his wife. Oh, my. Mm. Salacious. So, yes, let's celebrate Labor Day by talking about the American Coal Wars and what really happened during the Battle of Maitland. Let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Well, listen, how much do you know about coal? Oh, coal? Um, like, just off the top of your head. Top of my head, it is, uh, you get that for Christmas every year, right? It shows up in your stocking. Right. You get right? coal every year? Yeah, are you not? That's mm. that's normal, right? That's that's just what bad boys and girls get. Well, I am something of a bad boy, so <laughs> I think that works out pretty well. There you go. You I'm something of a bad girl, too, in that I'm <laughs> bad at being one. <laughs> So the overall I'm like goal a, is just I'm a I'm a bad boy and I'm a I'm a poor girl. <laughs> I guess I am kind of a poor girl too. Anyway, <laughs> enough about me. Words are fun. <laughs> well, basically nothing. I know nothing I know, about right? coal. I know we get them for the grill sometimes when you have a charcoal grill. Sure. That's, yeah. Right. And there's somewhere out there, somewhere. <laughs> coal eventually makes things work. Right. <laughs> like my laptop is being charged. Maybe because there's coal somewhere. Somewhere doing something. Burning. Somebody can fact check us on that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I just didn't know much about particularly, more specifically, the getting of coal. Oh. And getting it to me, the consumer. Okay, how does it end up in my stocking? Yeah, exactly. Oh, is this a Santa episode? Yeah, this is just the Christmas time, (laughs) year round. No, it's not. It is a story about workers, damn it. Oh. (laughs) And so I say we start off with a quick fling with history. You're fired! So coal was a big business in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Okay. This was the main energy source for the country. I mean, everything 
everything runs on coal. Yeah, okay. But getting it was extremely hard work and still is. You got to blow up mountains and you got to break rocks until you find a seam of coal and then you got to break that up and then you got to get it above ground and sort it and load it into railroad carts and then they carry it around all the country. That's one of those things, we've talked about this before with like chocolate and stuff. Yeah. But I'm like, the first person to go down there and find coal, it was so hard. Why didn't they just say, no, <laughs> let's go a different direction on looking for fuel. This isn't Something This else. isn't it. Where is it just a couple of guys like, let's just see which rocks burn. <laughs> let's see this which rock rocks burn. burn. <laughs> Move it over. They throw it away. How about this rock? Does this rock burn? Nope. <laughs> How about this rock? Like, they're just that bored. Until they're like, holy shit, this one burns really well. Holy shit. It's hard to get, that. though. So, yeah, besides being just an incredibly hard job, it was also very dangerous. Yeah. Between 1880 and 1923, more than 70,000 coal miners died on the job. Jeez. They were crushed to death. Ugh. They were killed in gas explosions or by machinery. Yale University notes that many, many more workers died from occupational diseases, from inhaling methane and coal dust for hours on end. And those are not included in the official death tally. So oh. we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of people dying Man. to get us the coal. And the work sucked so bad that coal companies went around recruiting workers from all over. They would pay poor whites who were struggling in small towns in South and Eastern Europe to relocate. Wow. And they would also lure in black people from former plantation areas. And they were looking to kind of get the fuck out after the collapse of Reconstruction led to a wave of white violence. Oh, wow. Okay. So they were like, come, it's safe over here. <laughs> yes. Come work for me. Crushed by a mountain. Jeez. So by 1900, nearly half a million people labored in coal mines, mostly in Appalachia on the East Coast. But the reality of the coal camp was like pretty dismal, you can imagine. Most coal fields were located in small company towns. And this is where all the property was owned by the company. And they were also the main employer. Like the coal companies, steel mills, factories, etc. They would just own everything. These developed in the 1870s with the companies then paying their workers not in dollars, but in company currency. This would be either vouchers or tokens or what they called coal script, or they would like give credit at the company stores. So it'd be like... Monopoly money. <laughs> it'd be like working for Amazon gift cards Ooh. at Amazon, right? It's like, mm -hmm. we're, instead of paying you a wage, you can just buy everything from us. Here's an Amazon gift card. Yeah. I'm sure they're thinking, don't say that too loud. I know, right? <laughs> you just told Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> now, the company would set everyone's wages. They would set their rents. They would set the price of goods. And they also managed the churches and the schools in town. Historian Linda Carlson wrote in an article called Company Towns in the Pacific Northwest that most people thought company towns had the right idea, right? It sounds mm -hmm. like a decent plan. They provided, quote, a good quality of life, providing decent housing, good schools, and a morally uplifting society. In return, they expected stable, hard-working employees who would eschew the evils of drink and, most importantly, not fall prey to the blandishments of union organizers. Union organizers, the scourge. <laughs> Well, it sounds so lovely and generous on the part of these companies right? to run all this wonderful services. How nice of you. Why would I need money of my own Amazing. when everything is provided for here? It's like working at the Cracker Barrel and you can shop at the Cracker Barrel store and eat at Cracker Barrel and <laughs> well, live at Cracker Barrel. Yeah, I mean, it sounds 
like a very minimalized version of federal capitalism, right? Like instead of working for credits, which I then spend at businesses, the federal Mm -hmm. dollar, I'm working for a credit directly within my town. Everything is provided for based on how much labor I provide. Uh Sounds great. Sounds very simple. Well, have you spotted the problem? I guess not. Because the companies would, you know, set the wages, set the rent, set the prices of goods and food in the stores, and they owned all the land. So you're 100% beholden to the whims of the company in everything. And since you're not paid in real money, it's not like you could take your business elsewhere or, you know, just the American dream of getting a deal on things. (laughs) (laughs) True. But surely... The companies are in charge of like my wages and the rent and everything. Sure. But I work for them. Surely they want to take good care of me, right? Oh, well. They're not going to screw me over. That's so sweet and fantastic (laughs) of you to think. (laughs) Because in 1893, there was this big economic panic. And it led this company called Pullman, located in Illinois, to decrease their workers' hours and wages because they Mm. had a decrease in demand. So they were decreasing supply. Okay. Okay. In perfect economic sense, right? That's what you do. But they refused to simultaneously decrease the cost of living in their company town. So rent, food, and goods were just as expensive as before. This led to the Pullman strike of 1894. The town ended up being annexed to Chicago in 1898 because that's how bad it was. You know, they were like, we can't, we're starving. You know, like they could not afford anything. Yeah. But this is a a common problem that the companies would often pay poorly and then they would turn around and take their money right back for overpriced goods and services and squalid housing, Mm. like not nice stuff. Okay. And they also restricted basic human rights like the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly and freedom of movement that we value so highly. They also employed mine guards and company paid sheriffs so that they kind of had a private force going on uh, to police your behavior. And on top of all that, Miners were paid by the ton, and the process of weighing the coal often resulted in conflicts, with the companies, of course, finding plenty of ways to short the workers. Mm. Like, oh, you didn't quite get a ton, so not today, Junior. And most politicians, of course, sided with the wealthy company owners over the workers, so nobody is looking out for the little guy. So you're telling me <laughs> that the people with all the money and power in this situation... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not fairly treating the people without any money or power. Right. I don't buy it for a second. You don't buy it. I know. It seems very <laughs> anti-American. Well, surely you could just go to your boss and say, hey, my housing is squalid. Uh-huh. Could you uh, maybe shell out a little of that extra cash you got lying around to kind of make my living conditions better? And they would say, oh, you're fired for asking. Yeah. So... As a result of all this, the coal miners started to organize unions. The three big ones at the time were the United Mine Workers of America, the Progressive Miners Union, and the National Union of Mine Workers, which I would just get those confused so many times. I'd be like, which place are we having a meeting tonight? (laughs) The Mine Workers Union of Workers or the Workers Union of Mine Working Unioners? (laughs) Right. I've got to be like, think they unionize this, is the the, unions. <laughs> like, this is why teams have mascots, right? They should just be like, we're the Falcons uh-huh, we're and the, we're the Dodos we're the Jags. and <laughs> Jaguars. we're the, the Jaguars. Yeah. Now, together, these guys could band together and they could agree to stop working, which would cost the company untold profits. And then they would make their demands to come back to work. 
Usually it was just for like shorter hours because these people were working insane hours. Uh, They would ask for better wages so they Mm -hmm. could pay for their, you know, housing and things and lives. Um, They would ask for safer conditions because, you know, people kept dying and getting horribly injured. They were like, hello, sir, can I please not get crushed to death at work today? Right. And the companies were like, well, that's not my problem. Sounds like a you problem. Yeah. Get down the mine. Or they'd say, you're fired for asking. I'll ask this other poor desperate person who's more desperate than you are, and they'll come and do it. Right. And pretty soon, everyone is so desperate that they will work for practically nothing mm-hmm. just to be given a scrap of bread and a, and a tin roof over their head. You know, and that's why you need the unions. (laughs) But the companies, of course, did not take unionization lying down. They would bring in armed private detectives, essentially their own little private army, and they would beat up and intimidate union representatives uh, until they forced them to leave town, or they would do the same to workers to keep them from joining. If the workers decided to strike, the detectives would come in and forcibly evict them and their families from their homes. They would cut off their credit at the company stores so these families couldn't get any food or clothing. See, the companies hoped that people watching their children starve would force the miners to come back to work under any conditions they had. Wholesome. And the unions would try and counter that, supporting strikes by providing a small amount of money and little sacks of flour and things to keep the union workers from starving. But they weren't as well funded as the companies, obviously. Plenty of workers did starve. Yeah. And the constant clashes between the coal companies and their private armies against the workers and unions became known as the Coal Wars, which a journalist named Winthrop Lane likened to another civil war. Crazy to think about basically another civil war being fought. And yeah. Like, I never heard about didn't this know in school. Right. <laughs> they didn't cover this war. Yeah. So, all right. That is kind of the overall coal industry. Mm. But our story takes place in West Virginia, which is still coal country to this day. And it's here where the West Virginia mine wars began in 1912, specifically in Paint Creek and Cabin Creek. Mm. More than 7,500 people were employed in those creeks in 96 coal mines. And half of those mines were unionized. But the union mines made slightly less per ton for coal than the non-union mines. This was just another way to de-incentivize joining a union gotcha. you got like a you know fraction of a penny less for your money but you know it all right. adds up in the end right now cabin and paint creeks decided they would join forces and strike for higher pay and also for concessions like freedom of speech and assembly ending compulsory trading at all company stores mm-hmm. and the blacklisting of fired workers okay and they also wanted to be able to employ their own check waymen who determined how much coal each miner had brought up at the end of the shift. Because okay. remember, they were paid by the ton. Uh-huh. And the companies were doing a lot of fuckery to make yeah. sure they weren't getting their full day's wage. Hold on there, fella. Now, before I weigh your coal, let me just uh, do a quick repair on the scale here. Just got to twist a little nut and, uh, oh, it looks like you didn't bring up any coal today, young man. But that's like a half a ton of coal right there. Oh, I don't see any myself on with you. You don't want to get fired, do you? Bye-bye. So, yeah, they wanted their own guys to do the counting. Yeah. Or at least maybe do a double check of the counting or something. (laughs) Something. Well, the companies immediately brought in private detectives from the Baldwin Feltz Agency. This agency got its start by bringing in bad guys who robbed railroads. Just James shit. Okay. (laughs) But by the 1890s, their main job was breaking strikes and bullying workers. And they were 
incredibly violent about it. In 1913, they would reinforce a railroad car called the Bull Moose Special with iron plating and machine guns, and they would drive through a miner's camp just shooting indiscriminately into tents, and they killed several people. In 1914, they attacked a tent colony of 1,200 striking miners and their families in Colorado, and they murdered 21 people, and this included women and children. This became known as the Ludlow Massacre. So when these assholes showed up in Paint and Cabin Creeks, armed and dangerous, miners knew what was coming, and they also armed themselves, and they marched to the state capitol to read a declaration of war. Through the summer, more than 50 people were killed directly, and many more died from malnutrition and starvation. Eventually, the governor had to declare martial law just to restore order. Although the militia that the governor put forward was on the side of, guess who? Mm. The coal companies, not the workers. I was going to guess differently. Nope, sorry. Coal companies faced zero consequences for their violence, while miners were tried in military tribunals and imprisoned. Because of the number of casualties, it's counted as one of the worst conflicts in American labor history. And have you ever heard of it? The Battle Uh, of Paint and Cabin Creek? Doesn't sound familiar to me. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) I think that's crazy. Oh, this is this is turning into a stuff they don't want you to know episode. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) We ought to get Ben in here. Yeah. Now, in this whole chaotic environment, Mm -hmm. coal miners fighting for their lives, detectives coming in, bang, bang, bang. Yep. Our subject for today, Mr. Sid Hatfield, became police chief in coal country, and we're gonna find out more about him right after this. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And welcome back to the show. So Sid Hatfield was born in Pike County, Kentucky in 1891 or 1893. You know, sometimes they write these things down. This happens so often (laughs) in our episodes. We're like, they were born in either 1742 or 1867. (laughs) Scholars aren't sure which. The records are not clear. I like this. He was born in 1891 or 1893. But we know for a goddamn (laughs) fact he wasn't born in 1892. No chance in hell. It was 1892, y'all. I know. I do think that's really strange. 
Now, he first worked on his family farm, and then he became a coal miner as a teenager and then a blacksmith. So this guy is hard labor his whole life. Yeah. And he was called Smiling Sid because he had a lot of gold caps on his teeth. Oh, I'd smile a lot, too, I guess. I, mean, I got to show him off. I mean, if you're going to put gold in your teeth, yeah. you may as well. Get that little ding. I know, like um, <laughs> like Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And apparently he also, like, smiled a lot. I, I guess in confrontation. Oh, <laughs> OK. OK. Because he was known as kind of a hard living, hard fighting kind of guy. Yeah. So it was a surprise to many respectable citizens when the mayor of Matewan, West Virginia, Cabell Cornelius Testerman, appointed Sid the police chief in <gasps> 1919 when he was about 27 years old. Old smiling Sid. Smiling Police Sid? chief. In charge around here. Well, that sounds crazy to me. Now, come on in, get you some pie. <laughs> <laughs> All <of> the South. <laughs> but Testerman was a big supporter of the United Mine Workers of America, which oh, okay. is really unusual for a mayor. Yeah. And so he wanted a police chief who was also a union supporter. So Sid was his guy. Yeah. Sid is a big union guy, too. Now, also in the year 1919, according to Smithsonian Magazine, the United Mine Workers held a nationwide strike of 400,000 workers. And they succeeded in securing higher wages and better working conditions. They were also heavily active in Matewan. They signed up miners left and right. And it seemed like all this made the coal company in Matewan, the Stone Mountain Coal Company, really nervous. Mm -hmm. Firstly, they started making workers sign what were called yellow dog contracts. And those said that when you were hired, if you joined a union at any point, it was grounds for immediate termination. And therefore you would get evicted from your company home. Additionally, that Baldwin Feltz detective agency that we talked about earlier, they had operatives offer Testerman and Sid $500 bribes, which is worth about, uh, looks like, $7,600 today. Mm, and they wanted good. to bribe them to let them place machine guns on rooftops throughout the town so they could suppress union activity. That's machine so guns. bonkers to me. It's like, People might join unions, so let's militarize the rooftops. I mean, that's crazy, right? That, that they were just like, we're going to open fire on you. This is how much money we're saving by oppressing our workers <sighs> and how dangerous it would be for them to demand better conditions. Okay. Smiling Sid and Mayor Testerman told the Baldwin Feltz agents that they could go suck rocks. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And they're like, we're here in the mountains. There'll be plenty of rocks around, so start <laughs> sucking. That one burns, that one don't. Take your pick. <laughs> well, instead of sucking rocks, the coal companies took more direct action. Oh, no. They fired 3,000 workers. Of course. And then they sent Baldwin Feltz detectives to evict them from their houses. Mm -hmm. So on May 19th, 1920, a dozen Baldwin Feltz detectives led by Albert Feltz showed up to spend a busy day ejecting men, women, and children from their homes. Oh, hum, another work. Tuesday. <laughs> no, the noble work that I undertake. And hundreds of families ended up spending the spring of 1920 living in tents. According to a book called Thunder in the Mountains, The West Virginia Mine War by Lon Savage, the first family they evicted was a woman and her children. Her husband was not home at the time. So the minor that would be striking, yeah. that they would be ostensibly pub punishing, was uh -huh. not present. 
And they forced this woman and her kids out of the home at gunpoint and threw all their stuff out into the street in the middle of a steady rain. Wow. The National Park Service estimates that in the Paint and Cabin Creek evictions, Baldwin Feltz agents destroyed $40,000 worth of personal property, including furniture. So it's pretty safe to assume that the miners here in Matewan got very similar treatment. Mm -hmm. All their stuff was thrown out. Just real crazy, over-the-top actions to get them out of their homes. And so word started spreading around town about these evictions and quickly reached the ears of the police chief, Sid Hatfield. It's scary to me regularly whenever I think about this because it it always feels so historical, like it couldn't happen. But it happens all the time Mm -hmm. when you create a, a force of people a little a little militia or military and tell them hey you can uh treat those people however you want i know right they are the they turn into the most horrible monsters you can imagine mm-hmm. it's it, and it keeps happening it always yeah. happens yeah i mean so many experiments have shown that we kind of all of us have us have it in us right it's just the circumstances we live in right and whether or not of course <laughs> you give into that impulse but right they have right. seen i think they that was that the Stanford prison experiment, uh-huh. I think, is most uh-huh. often cited. I wouldn't. I'm all good. Oh. I just smiled and my little gold tooth sparkled. How fantastic. <laughs> How fantastic. Wait a minute. <laughs> I know on. what that word really means. <laughs> Earlier you said I could let all <laughs> kinds of things happen and just have a totally blank <laughs> wouldn't expression. Wouldn't bat an eye. No emotion. I could do that if I chose to. Okay, but you're but good I all wouldn't. the way through, so you would never. Yeah, I would okay. never. Okay. I'm all good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm like a Godiva truffle, just sweet <laughs> all the way through. So the Baldwin Feltz detectives were heading off to the train station after a long day of evicting women and children from their homes in the rain. Gotta catch the five o'clock. <laughs> but Sid and his deputy, and several other miners intercepted these guys. And on the porch of the Chambers Hardware Store on Mate Street, they confronted the agents about all these evictions. Sid told Albert Feltz that he had a warrant to arrest him. Albert replied that he actually had a warrant to arrest Sid. Now, unbeknownst to the detectives, there were a lot of miners in town that day that were collecting their bags of flour and their small stipends from the union. And most of these guys were armed. They were watching carefully out of windows and doors as Sid and Albert shoved each other's warrants in their faces. Now, Mayor Testerman showed up, ran out of the street, said, Hold on now, Albert Feltz. Now, I want to see the warrant that you have to arrest Sid. Feltz hands him the warrant, and he takes a long look at it, and Mayor Testerman looks up and announced, quote, Well, this is a bogus warrant. (gasps) Immediately, gunshots rang out. Mayor Testerman was shot first, and he fell to the ground wounded. Detectives, deputies, and miners exchanged shots for a frantic 15 minutes. Albert's brother, Lee Feltz, was killed, Firing indiscriminately, Albert took shelter in the Matewan post office, but Sid, like an avenging angel, busts in, finds him, probably calls him a yellow-bellied coward, and shoots him. When the shooting stopped, the townspeople came out of hiding to assess the damage. And it was significant. Mayor Testerman was dead, along with one miner who had been fired the day before for joining the union, 
and another unarmed bystander named Tot Tinsley. Not Tot Tinsley. Tot Tinsley, no. Damn, what a good name. Such a good name. And a sad death. I know. Hats off to Tot. Yes. Pour one out for Tot Tinsley. Pour one out for Tot tonight. And four other townsfolk were wounded. But on the Baldwin Felt side, seven detectives had died, including both Albert and Lee Feltz. Now, this was huge for miners. This was the first time that the seemingly invincible bullies of the Baldwin Feltz Agency had been beaten. And the gunfight became known as the Matewan Massacre, and Sid Hatfield became a legend and a hero to the Union miners. He even starred in a short film for United Mine Workers called Smilin' Sid! (laughs) And he was photographed with other celebrated labor leaders, including Mary Harris' Mother Jones. Yes, that one. From the magazine. That's right. One of the people who was arrested after paint in Cabin Creeks, actually. Oh, Smother Jones? She got her military tribunal and went to jail for a little while. Yeah. I want to see this movie. Okay, I would totally watch this movie. (laughs) I mean, it's got to be the old-timey silent film, right? Some piano music. Smiling Sid, definitely, right? And he's like... He comes out, smiles, and and the cards come up and say... Hey there, detective, I ain't taking no guff from you. And the detective's like a big piece of shit uh-huh. guy. <laughs> uh-huh. He's got like money coming out of his pockets. Yeah, and yeah. he's got a dumb look on his face. Beaver, beaver skin top hats. And then the title card comes up and he's like... <laughs> <laughs> and Sid just pushes him over the end. <laughs> the end. And they're like, support the union. <laughs> I hope that's not what it is, because that doesn't sound like very effective. <laughs> Well, feels like Sid would probably say no to that movie. We're workshopping here, you know. <laughs> we're workshopping. No wrong ideas during brainstorming time. <laughs> but even with this big victory, the union was struggling at this time. Most of the mines reopened with imported replacements, likely these immigrants who probably didn't even know they were strike breakers, you know, who had been yeah. lured in from Europe. And other strikers signed the yellow dog contracts so that they could get back to work. Right. They were done living in tents. So in late June, a union miners camp colony was raided and miners were shot and arrested. Their tents were shredded and their belongings scattered out into the wilderness. Another strike was organized in response in July 1920 and violence quickly erupted. Railroad cars were blown up and miners were beaten and left to die by the side of the road. So just a lot of violence from both ends. Yeah. And both sides were getting their ammo together. You know, this is a war after all. So they're stockpiling stuff. Right. Sid even converted Mayor Testerman's jewelry store into a gun shop so more miners could arm themselves. Wow. And throughout the fall, more sporadic shootouts and violence occurred between the union and the coal companies. Now, in January of 1921, Sid and the other miners involved in the massacre stood trial for killing Albert Feltz. And this was a national story. Sid's legend only grew as he would go out and he he freely chatted up with reporters, and posed for pictures. He, he, he absorbed the celebrity and was like, "You, yes, everyone should know who I am and what I did. Well, I think, too, that there maybe was a strategy involved with it. Uh-huh. A speculation station okay. that maybe the union was like, all eyes are sure. on you. So go out there and tell people why yeah. they should be supporting us and not the coal companies and right. be charismatic and get your message out. You know yes. what I mean? Because these, these battles between unions and companies are so often 
well, A, wars of attrition, right? right. Like, let's see, if we're going to starve you out. Right. Like, you can strike, but mm-hmm. you won't get paid. And mm-hmm. let's see how long that strike lasts. And the other one is a war of, of information. Yeah. Because it's so much about getting people who are totally uninvolved, but are, you know, we're, we're affected way down the line by the products and services we're getting from these workers. Yeah. Um, so if they have our support as consumers... Mm-hmm. That's a lot more people pushing back against the company and vice versa. Right. You know, well, and they say every war is a war on two fronts, the yeah. war itself and then the war of propaganda of mines, yeah. to keep popular support. Because once you lose people's support for a war, it becomes very difficult to continue right. doing it, right. fighting it. So. so Sid's out here chatting it up with the media, getting on camera. Or getting a newspaper's probably. It's not like CNN's not out there. I'm sure he got his picture taken. (laughs) But I don't know that they were taking any (laughs) footage. But at the trial sits the ridiculous romance at the center of this story. Because lawyers for Baldwin Feltz argued that Sid Hatfield was the one who fired the first shot in order to use the cover to kill Mayor Cabell Testerman because Sid was in love with Testerman's wife. Jesse Lee Maynard. (gasps) Why did they think this? That's an outrageous claim, right? Because why would this guy go go shoot the man who hired him, the guy who he was supporting? The guy who was protecting him Uh by saying this is not a real warrant. Like he's protecting Sid from getting arrested and Sid thanks him by shooting him in the back. Right? And what, he's in love with his wife? Well, only 11 days after Mayor Testerman was shot and killed, Sid was discovered by a Baldwin Feltz agency spy named Charles Lively, quote, having improper relations with Testerman's 19-year-old widow. And the very next day, the two of them got married. Man, less than two weeks after Cabell was killed. Mm. Okay. That adds a little bit of suspiciosity to this whole thing. Suspiciatus. What was that word? (laughs) Suspiciosity. I like that one. Write Uh that one down. (laughs) Now, newspapers said, quote, she married the man who killed her husband. Yikes. The speed at which they got married after Testerman died was definitely some compelling evidence. but. Jessie herself claimed that her husband knew that they were in a very dangerous situation, and he asked Sid to take care of her and their young son if anything ever happened to him. Do you believe it? I mean, I don't know. It makes sense to me if she's the one saying that. She was only 19, it's you true, know, and this guy's like... Marry Sid. Sure, she, she might just, just say that. that some shit? Maybe, but that would mean the two of them conspired together to kill her husband. The father of her son. Seems harsh. You know, I don't know. Unless they unless he was an abusive husband, mm-hmm. which he might have been. She was 19. No idea. He was, uh, you know, a, a mayor of some renown and probably could get whatever he wanted and mm. wasn't used to being told no. Yeah. So maybe he was a piece of shit and she was just looking for. But was Sid better? I don't know. I, don't I mean, know. That none of that, unfortunately, is nothing yeah. personal from anyone about this. Yeah. So that we can only speculate. Yeah. Oh, it's entirely in speculation station <laughs> run by a coal powered locomotive. <laughs> this episode brought to you by coal. <laughs> <laughs> Kingston charcoal. <laughs> I love um, it. <laughs> so we don't know. We don't know. This is very suspicious. But Jesse also was also described as the prettiest girl on the mountain. Well, so. You well, couldn't do better than Jesse, I suppose. Maybe somebody department. else was about to shoot 
the mayor. You know, like he had his day was coming. But it seems like why would not the detectives who uh, we already know like to shoot people? Right. Not that the miners don't like to shoot people, too. Right. Like, I mean, come on. (laughs) I don't know. It feels like. Y'all do be shooting first a lot. Uh, <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> wow, so she's if this if that is the case, then she's like she's our own little Helen of Troy. Right? Mm, she's, she's so pretty. So she's this just war broke the out. <laughs> the whole the entire labor union movement was just a cover up for these two guys fighting over this pretty Where? girl. Where's the Helen of Troy? But it's set in the Battle of Matewan. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Cold Wars. Somebody call um Zendaya, I couldn't think of another 19 oh. <laughs> young actress. Zendaya ain't 19. She's well into her 20s now. Yeah, she's like 27 or something. Where's right? the... Somebody call... I'm not out of touch. <laughs> I'm with it. I'm cool. I'm hip. I know all the young stars. You're tripping. <laughs> You're drowning out here. You're drowning. Somebody calls one of those kids from Euphoria probably. I don't know. All right. Well, whatever happened... By the end of the trial in March, every Matewan miner had been acquitted. Oh, okay. But this really pissed off Thomas Feltz. He was Albert and Lee's brother. And of course, the co-owner and operator of the Baldwin Feltz Agency. I guess he he just stayed back at home while they went into the dangerous situation. He's got a desk job, but they're uh-huh. still field agents. Oh, yeah. And so he waited patiently for his own little opportunity to get rid of Sid. That's his Kill Bill list. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's the one name. Somebody Sid. call, who would play uh, Thomas Feltz? Somebody call, who plays an asshole? Oh, who's that guy who played Sterling Cooper on Mad Men? Oh, yeah, totally. I don't yeah, know his name. Tony Stark's dad. Yeah, he's yeah. going to be a good choice. He's, sure. he's, there you go. And as Thomas waited for his moment, the Beldwin Feltz spy, Charles Lively, that sniveling creep who caught Sid and Jesse together, would eventually give him his chance. And let's find out how right after this commercial break from coal. America's coal. <laughs> America runs on coal. <laughs> this is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics 
in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Hope everybody ran out and brought some coal during that <laughs> yes. short break. Welcome back, my little coal lovers. I know, I'm like, we're supposed to be moving away from coal <laughs> <laughs> overall. This is a story about labor, not about coal. <laughs> right. Yes. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect our own opinions <laughs> about climate change. Necessarily. Now, in mid May 1921, 
Union workers launched a full-scale assault of non-union mines in what became known as the Three Days Battle. Martial law had to be declared to end the violence. A lot of martial law going around. Yeah. Uh, Miners, of course, were disproportionately arrested. And Charles Lively testified in secret that one night, Sid Hatfield, his deputy, Ed Chambers, and a number of other union miners were hanging out and Lively persuaded them to shoot up a non-union coal tipple in Mohawk, West Virginia. A coal, coal tipples are what they use to load coal into railroad cars. Okay, okay. Um, so it would have been full of coal and they would blow it up so that the coal couldn't be sold. Wow. Now, when the Union miners arrived to blow up this coal tipple, the mine guards were ready for them with machine guns and bloodhounds. So I'm not sure if they ever actually got to blow, blow up this <laughs> coal tipple right. or not. Um, they had gotten a nice heads up from Charles Lively. Mm. Now, with this testimony from Charles, Thomas Feltz was able to bring a charge of conspiracy against Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers. Mm -hmm. So Sid would have to go to trial. And he knew that the Baldwin Feltz agency was out for his blood and that going out just out in the open somewhere was not safe for him. Yeah. So Sid reached out to the sheriff of McDowell County where the trial would take place. And this was a distant relative of his named Bill Hatfield. Okay. And Bill's like, no problem. I, I got the whole sheriff's office. Just going to have your backs. We'll all be at red alert, ready for anything and everything. And we've got you, brother. But according to Howard Lee's book, Bloodletting in Appalachia, the day before the trial, Bill took himself out of town for some self-care at the Craig Healing Springs Resort. So sure enough, when Sid and Ed arrived at the courthouse on August 1st, 1921, unarmed and accompanied by their wives, there were no officers there looking out for them. Several Baldwin Feltz agents were lying in wait and they opened fire on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse. Ed Chambers was shot several times and rolled down the steps of the courthouse. And while his wife screamed in protest, Charles Lively walked over and shot him point-blank in the head. Sid himself was shot several times in the chest, and he died instantly, with Jesse barely escaping unharmed. Now this made the Union argue that the entire Cole Tipple sabotage had been orchestrated by Baldwin Feltz just to ambush and assassinate Sid. So the real conspiracy. Yeah. They're bringing a charge of conspiracy, but they were conspiring. They're like, you guys set up the whole thing to begin with, right? Right. That's what they thought. Yeah. That's what they think. But the Baldwin Feltz agents bizarrely claimed that they had been acting in self-defense, even though these two guys were both unarmed. They said they'd seen Sid reach into his pocket. Classic. Detective right, murder defense. Like, Heard this before. Uh-huh. And I guess they could claim that they didn't know he was unarmed until they had already uh-huh. shot him oh, and yeah. could search him. Oh, that's the best claim in the world. Oh, yeah. A great claim. Now, not a single detective was convicted. And to this day, there are bullet marks visible on the stairs of the courthouse. The assassination of their hero, Sid Hatfield, royally pissed off the union and the workers. Sure. After more than 3,000 showed up to mourn him at his funeral, they became more determined than ever to organize. Armed miners started to gather, and within four days, they were a force 13,000 strong, and they started to march to Logan County, West Virginia, to forcibly unionize the mines there. 
But the anti-union sheriff there, Don Chafin, thanks to an influx of cash from the coal companies, managed to put together his own force of nearly 2,000. That was the largest private armed force in the nation. Wow. He also had better weapons and better defenses. Mm. He had higher positions. Okay. I have the high ground. <laughs> Annie, what are you doing? What is this? How do you do? How do you 1920s do? 1920s, you and McGregor. Yeah. What? Annie, what are you doing? Annie, what are you doing? I have the I'm high ground. I'm making talkies now. <laughs> it's over, Anakin. <laughs> I have the high ground. <laughs> I loved you like you were a brother. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we make the 1920s Phantom Menace? Please. Well, it would have been Revenge <laughs> of the I mean, Sith. Yeah, but Revenge yeah. of the Sith. <laughs> yes, please. I'm in. Silent film version of Star Wars. <laughs> On August 25th, there were a few skirmishes where Chafin's forces dropped bleach and shrapnel bombs on the United Mine Workers headquarters, while most of the miners were still miles away from Logan County. Wow. The next day, President Warren G. Harding threatened to send in the feds and even deploy army bombers. And after a long meeting, the miners were convinced to turn around and head home. Peace restored. (laughs) But Chafin had put together this whole private army, and he wasn't ready to stand down. He wanted to end union organization once and for all. So within hours of the miners deciding to leave, there were rumors of Chafin's men shooting union sympathizers just north of Blair Mountain in West Virginia, and their families got caught in the crossfire. Union miners were enraged, and they turned right back around to go back to Blair Mountain, even commandeering trains to get there. Again... Even though they were outnumbered, Chafin's private army had way better weapons, they had higher positions, they were ready. And private planes dropped homemade bombs on the miners. Several towns were inundated with poison gas and explosives left over from World War I. The West Virginia National Guard was brought in to command the anti-union forces, and gun battles broke out for a week. And in the end, a million rounds of ammunition had been fired. And there were around 30 deaths on Chafin's side reported, while the miners suffered over 100 casualties, and hundreds more miners were wounded. This five-day conflict became known as the Battle of Blair Mountain, and it is the largest labor uprising in U.S. history and the largest armed uprising since the Civil War. Can you imagine, though, like, your employers, like, I work at Panera, (laughs) (laughs) Right. And Panera Bread is using weapons of war against me that were just used. Uh Uh-huh. What did you say? I said not a sponsor. Not a sponsor, yeah. Sorry, Panera. (laughs) Just picked a name out of Panera. I I would love some Panera after this. We love Panera. Mm -mm, Panera, please don't bomb us. (laughs) (laughs) Bread bowls, not bombs. Yes. (laughs) Drop bread, not bombs. (laughs) I always say. Love from Panera. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, it just would be so crazy to have just come out of a war where you used those weapons against enemies of your country uh-huh. and then had them turned against you. Yeah. Like, that would just be, I think, very hard to see. Oof. Well, finally, the feds stepped in on September 2nd. And because many of the miners were veterans, they fought in World War One. They were not willing to shoot U.S. troops. Wow. So they started to leave Logan County the next day. A lot of them hid their weapons in the woods. Mm. And 985 miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Wow. 
Some were acquitted by sympathetic juries, but most were imprisoned for years. Now, this looked like a huge victory for the coal industry owners and management, right? Like, they won. Oh, yeah. All we, these miners are in did trouble. did it, boys. That's right. <laughs> we protected all of our money. Good use of poison gas, fellas. <laughs> so, yeah, they won. They're in jail. And after the battle, union membership plummeted from 50,000 miners to 10,000 miners. Wow. So the coal companies are, like, really patting themselves on the back mm-hmm. here. But their victory did not last long. Because this battle also raised national awareness about the appalling and dangerous conditions that these workers were laboring under. And it led to important changes in union tactics as well. The unions maybe said, put down the gun, pick up the lobbying pencil. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you really, you should really go out and start organizing. I know, right? Everyone is like, ooh, thrilling. (laughs) I'm stirred by your speech. Right. But yeah, it was kind of like the first time in the Cold Wars that the government was openly acknowledging that miners had the right to organize and they also had the right to survive their work day. Wow. Which is a crazy thing to say out loud. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at one point, that was not a right you had. Yeah. People felt that if you had a dangerous job, sucked to be you. So eventually, the unions had a much larger victory when the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act was passed that protected collective bargaining rights for workers, which they immediately used to secure better wages and hours and safer conditions and all of that good stuff that they had been fighting for. And with less strike-breaking work coming in, the Baldwin-Feltz Agency was dissolved in 1937. Bye. Bye. But hey. Whatever happened to old Jesse Lee Maynard, or should I say young Jesse Lee Maynard? (laughs) Very young Jesse Lee Maynard. (laughs) Well, just about a half a year after Sid was killed, she accepted a third marriage proposal. Again, prettiest girl in town. Prettiest girl Um, on the mountain. (laughs) This time it was from Sylvester Petrie, a state trooper. And within 18 months at only 20 years old, Jesse had been married three times and widowed twice. So, of course, newspapers had a field day with the gun widow who first married the man who killed her husband. And then after he himself was killed by gun violence, she went out and married one of the law and order types who would probably have shot Sid himself if he'd been there. (laughs) So it's a big story. Yeah, they were like, she killed the guy who killed her husband and then then married a guy who would have killed her husband if he'd been there to do it. But he would have. He wasn't. But it would. (laughs) Pick a side, (laughs) Jesse. For real. But these two were only married for a year before Sylvester passed away at the end of 1922. And the Mingo County records show that Jesse got the hell out of West Virginia (laughs) and she married a fourth and final time to some guy named W.R. Jennings in Ohio in 1928. And, you know, hopefully just settled down and was like, okay, I'm done with my husband's dying. Let's (laughs) see if this one lasts a while. while. Yeah. I mean, I can't decide if, like, after Sylvester died, people were like, girl, what is going on? (laughs) Uh, Speculation station, why do Jesse's husbands keep dying? I mean, well. Maybe, wait, oh, ooh, speculation station. Maybe she organized the entire labor movement. (gasps) Just to take out her first couple of husbands. That's what she did. That's probably it. She was working with Baldwin Feltz the entire time. Yep. As like an inside job. (laughs) Giving him all the goods. You hear me, Jimmy Hoffa? 
that's what it's happened. Built on a lie. <laughs> Some horny nineteen-year-old, right? Just wanted to switch boys. More than likely, he just had a, a dangerous job. And, yeah, it's probably not died. it. It's probably the speculation stations uh, <laughs> had some. Uh, our, our trains aren't running right now. <laughs> They're really. We've had, we've had a coal shortage. All the union workers are on strike, <laughs> so the trains aren't running. Really, yeah, we got nothing now. I don't. I don't know about you, but I was definitely like, "What in the world was up with these coal companies?" and 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 Baldwin Feltz detectives yeah. just being like, I will happily shoot this guy in the face. Right. Like, I, I just don't, I don't get that. Right, impulse. right. Now, historian Rebecca Bailey in Smithsonian Magazine was like pressing for a little nuance. Okay, okay. <laughs> and she points out that the Baldwin Feltz agents and the other anti-union folks really, truly believed that they were putting down a sincere threat of Bolshevik communism. Okay. Because, of course... The Russian Revolution had just happened. Sure. Communism was gaining a lot of popularity for a number of years after that okay. amongst the workers. Mm-hmm. And that did lead to a lot of destabilization with the systems. That was the point of uh-huh. revolution, of course. Okay. Things got messy and uncomfortable. And so there were a lot of people who were very, 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 very worried about communism yeah. in 1920. And they were like, any sign of it is uh, is too many signs. And they were like, there's two possibilities here. Either we uh, give you terrible wages, overcharge you for your rents, and give you working conditions that you die in, or communism. Mm. Uh, The choice is clear, folks. (laughs) The choice (laughs) is clear. Come on. People suffer under communism. (laughs) Yeah, but not under us. I know, right? Uh, she, She also was saying that, like, they... Companies really hated, of course, the wage conversation because sure. the price of labor is kind of the only thing they could adjust, okay. I guess, to their budgets. Right. Whereas, like, the cost of blowing up the mountain and transporting things and all that stuff was like hard cost they couldn't do anything about. Sure. And then the amount they could sell it for, of course, is designated by the free market, supposedly. And so that was like kind of the one thing they could manipulate, mm-hmm. which. Uh, it's not a strong argument for them. I, it's just their thought process. You know? How am I supposed to make a million dollars if all my workers have enough food to feed themselves? If I let you have a, sh- a fair share of your product. I might only have to have $750,000. A paltry sum. Paltry, <laughs> I say. How's a man supposed to live on that? <laughs> she also asserted that the miners would most often instigate violence. Okay. Because... She said most outsiders gave them the moral high ground. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. No matter what happened. Right, Because they were the workers, I suppose. And so it was like, it seems like a David and Goliath story. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you always side with David, even if he threw the first stone or whatever. But in the Smithsonian Magazine, a former West Virginia coal miner and a member of the local United Mine Workers chapter there, Terry Steele, really pushes back on that. He says the narrative that most people heard were that mountain people and mine workers were inherently violent and unreasonable, perpetually drunk, and incapable of solving any problem without a gun. So most people, that's what they thought about the miners. So Terry says that locals knew good and well. The local wisdom was, quote, if you got a mule killed in the mines and you were in charge, you could lose your job over it. If you got a man killed, he could be replaced. Oh. And in conditions like that, he argues, what other option do you have but revolt? All right. 
Fair. And I kind of feel that. Yeah. I kind of I mean, feel it's that. Interesting. Yeah. And he was pointing out, too, that I guess, uh, I, I suppose the mine that he was working at had declared bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So he was losing his health insurance and oh. his retirement plan. So he's like, everything is still company store to me. Right. I mean, to me, it's no different. And a lot of things that we had fought for in 1920, we're still asking for sure. now because of the decline in union power over the last decades, many yeah. decades. So. Yeah. But I'm thinking about those Starbucks that are unionizing. And I'm uh, like, right. well, uh, you know, they shouldn't be getting fired, but at least they're not getting fired upon with machine <laughs> guns. Yeah, not yet. Uh, not yet. I know. But but I mean, that's the history of, this was of 100 labor years ago. Yeah. In, in this country, it was yeah. a very violent yeah. fight for the rights that we enjoy today. And we right, just, enjoy them. Now we're like, well, we want a four day work week now. Well, we're I like, mean, just to get to where we are today, right, which exactly. is still a lot of oppressive labor and low wages and mm-hmm. things like that, too. I mean, yeah. again, you it you don't have to you don't need me to tell you no. the comparison between, you know, what how wages have grown <laughs> versus how companies have profited over the last, you know, X number of decades is not proportionate. No. And the cost of living. Yeah. All that. All that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Very there's, crazy. There's still there's all there's always further to go. Yeah. You know, very true. And it's rarely out of you know, this fabricated notion of like people are lazy and, mm-hmm. you know, and don't want to. Who wants to work? My God. Not do anything many of us. But work, you know, but it's but but who's but we want to do something. You know, right. people don't want to just sit around on their butts all day. Like, ugh. that's Nobody definitely what that. I think. They'll be innovative and they'll be creative and they'll be productive. But the problem is they won't take out the trash and scrub the toilet. And yeah. clean the shit out of yeah. the car and stuff like all the jobs. all those jobs that no one would do for free, and which should be highly financially rewarded because they're the grossest, they nastiest jobs <laughs> that nobody wants. Right? Which I know that, we have to me that just just real quick that to me that makes the most sense. It's like the worst job that no one would want uh-huh. should get a lot of the money. You yeah, know? I don't know. I thought that I. I think that I do have a bit more of a uh, an education on labor, the labor history, because yeah. we in my school, we were just very alternative that way. We didn't, yeah. you know, we talked about this sort of thing, but I didn't know about this and right. how many people died, literally yeah. fully died. Yeah. I remember hearing uh, a very high ranking union officer on a film set once on the cell phone and he just walked past me and all I heard him say was, I will personally go dig up Jimmy Hoffa himself and get him down here to blah, blah. Then he kind of walked away and I didn't hear the rest. I was like, man, union fights are awesome. She's like, you know where Jimmy Hoffa is? Uh, right. Everyone's been asking literally for years. Amazing. Speaking of, we've already finished telling this story, so we're not getting paid for all this banter. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to strike for the, for the end of this episode. Until we record the next one. Yeah. How's yeah. that sound? I'm striking. I'm striking to get us the hell out of here. <laughs> Strike it. Final thoughts? Final thoughts is I just hope that you enjoyed this story. Oh. I really loved looking into it. It was so fascinating to me to learn about the Cold Wars yeah. and all this crazy shit that we never get told. And the true blood that was spilled to get yeah. us the working conditions that we have now. Yep. And uh, hopefully we won't have to spill any more blood to get even better working conditions. Yeah. So we can all get our beautiful, beautiful coal. America's coal. coal. 
Here, the, the, the little nuggets of happiness. Yeah. Come in your stocking if you're good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this story, too. Um, send us an email and we'll shoot you back a little lump of coal. <laughs> you can find us at ridicromance at gmail.com. Right, or on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. And the show is at Riddick Romance. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone, and we will catch y'all in the next one. Love you. Bye. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and dance to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 